When they came to the crowd, a man came to him, knelt before him, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Jesus answered, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. And it came out of him, and the boy was cured instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because you, your little faith, for truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised. And they were greatly distressed. Thanks. I, I'd like to start by praying, if that's all right, God. <clears throat> um, I'll just echo that, what we know as the Jesus prayer of Lord uh, Jesus, Son of David, would you just have mercy on us? And... Uh, the myriad things that we're facing and things in life that we're navigating, just pray your grace. Um, pray for those who are struggling with illness things and grandkid illness things and friends of ours, think even especially of Chase, who so would like to be here and yet continues to just battle and pray that you'd be with him and he would feel your presence this morning. Uh, thanks, God, for our friends who are here that they're, frankly, they don't know what to do with you anymore. <coughs> and... I uh, pray that this would prove a safe space for them to continue to wrestle with that and in the context of relationship, uh, figure out where all that lands for them in this season, in this moment. Amen. So uh, we've been in this series, it's a year ago this weekend, like not this date, but if you're brand new to narrate or still kind of trying to get a feel for it, uh, we started a series the Sunday after Easter last year from the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, though at the time it didn't seem, uh, it wasn't clear to me why we were doing this, it was, it was something that was resonating to me in my own study time. I just kind of started working through Matthew. At the time, again, it didn't totally make sense or, or it wasn't totally clear, but what's become clear is that I think part of what was happening is there was just so much opinion and so much stuff happening and so much deconstruction and so much conversation, none of which was bad, but it felt like it might be meaningful to make this space a space where we just kind of drill down on who is this guy Jesus? Uh, why has he been such a compelling figure for 2,000 years? And while I'm not so naive as to think that I can bring it unfiltered, that, that I don't bring my own bias, that commentators and resources that I'm using don't bring that, like the attempt was to just go, let's just sit with the original story. But then it got kind of weird because if you remember, Lexi, who leads our kids, did a great job with Matthew 17 in the Transfiguration, no easy passage. So right before Lent, she spoke, and then we jumped into Lent and we did some stuff around fasting, and then we jumped ahead to Matthew 26, where more or less we've spent all of Lent dealing with the last week of Jesus' life, and then you may have noticed we stopped short before the last paragraph of Matthew because we're going to come back to that when we're done, and now we're going back to Matthew 17, right after the transfiguration. So it's like, how many of you are old enough to remember or cool enough to re-identify uh, Wayne's World? Is that a thing? Do you remember Wayne's World? 
Remember there's that like, like I feel like that's kind of like what we're doing is we're like moving through this timeline back and forth. So we're back in Matthew 17. Not sure how far we're gonna make it before in September when we launch into the new year. We're gonna, we're gonna do a, a, a topical series from the text that kind of deals with like your mental game and we're, I'm really excited working already on some of that. So I don't know if we'll finish Matthew by then or not, but this is where we're at. And the question becomes, okay, what about this story? In case you missed it, it's, it's one of the trickier stories, I think, in the Gospels. It's the type of thing that if you're not committed to reading the, the Gospel word for word and line by line and left to right, you probably just skip because it's loaded with awkwardness. There's a guy who asked a few of Jesus' disciples, it would seem nine of them, to heal his son, who initially were told had epilepsy, and then they're not able to, and so they bring him to Jesus, and Jesus heals him, but he doesn't just heal him, he drives a demon out of him, and then he gets really upset with his disciples, or beforehand he gets upset with his disciples because they can't, and then he makes this massive promise. Like, I mean, okay, you're God, Jesus, but even still, like, that's a huge blank check. This huge statement about faith. I was, in my 20s, I worked for somebody who was kind of teaching me leadership, and I'm so grateful. One of his mantras, and one of the things he was hardest on me about was this principle of, like, under-promise and over-deliver. Under-promise, and his thing was like, Adam, if you think you can have it to him on Thursday, tell him Friday, and deliver it on Thursday. Because if you tell him Thursday, and then you deliver it on Friday, that's a big deal. So under-promise, over-deliver. I think that's a proverb that served me really, really well. Jesus is, is somewhat guilty of doing the opposite here. I mean, you talk about a massive promise, and it's part of what can make it just awkward to even sit with this text. But I, I think we can make it work, which I'm not trying to suggest that I'm so smart that I can make it work, but I am trying to be honest and go like, this was one that was for me like, okay, Lord, uh, because this is, this is tricky. And I think it might start with this question, or at least this might be a good on-ramp. Uh, what, what's, what's your most trivial skill? You know, your your most meaningless asset. Like this thing that you do and like maybe you whittle wood and it's like, it's cool, but seriously, or you wire bonsai trees or <laughs> like, or you fix, you fix typewriters. Like what, what's the thing that, it's, it, you're never gonna get paid to do it. In most cases, you don't even want to admit that you do it. Uh, maybe, maybe you've been to some of those conferences. Like, there are some people who get paid, but they're like the best of the best of the best. Like, years ago, I noticed at Christian conferences, there was this thing that between, between speakers, they started putting these weird kind of circus acts. Like, there's that, uh, maybe you've seen her before. I've seen her. She's done, like, NBA games. But I, I think it's called, she's called the Pink Panda, the lady who rides unicycles and flips dishes up in the air, and they land on her head. Seen that lady? I saw her at a conference once. Also saw this guy at, at Catalyst in Atlanta. There was on like a 20-foot platform, and then there was a kiddie pool with like six inches of water below, and he dove off the platform and belly flopped into the water and stood up and walked away. So, I'm talking those kind of trivial skills, only you're probably not that masterful. <laughs> uh, I remember many years ago, I was at a conference with the staff that I was a part of in Billings, and it was a Willow Creek conference, and they had these couple guys, I think, I can't remember actually if they were both men or if it was a man and woman, it was a, a duet, and they were, for like three minutes, they masterfully played the nose flute, like two of them, and it was this, it was kind of mesmerizing of like, wow, they're playing the nose flute for three minutes, and it was entertaining, and and one of the guys on our team, his, his name was Mike Brummett, uh, he was one of the most skilled musicians I've ever known, and he, he helped start the music um, area in this, for this church. In fact, 
uh, just to give credence to his credibility, like he was Lenny, our friend Lenny, who's in Helena and been part of things for a while. Like that was, he was his mentor. And I remember we were on a break, kind of walking around the books and stuff like you do in, in the breaks. And I said, hey, Mike, I probably was Brummett. Hey, Brummett, what'd you, what'd you think of the people with the nose flutes? And he's classic musician, Enneagram 4, melancholy. And he goes, well, he said, kind of like being the master of Parcheesi. Good job. Totally like, I can't use that skill. What are they doing? So what, what's your most trivial skill? Maybe, would you just shout a few out? Writing upside down. Right, writing upside down. You've got the Seinfeld pin, <laughs> the, the space pin. Speaking gibberish. Speaking gibberish. Sudoku. Sudoku? Oh, yeah, you're like the guy on the airplane. <laughs> I know you've got more trivial skills than this. Huh? Seriously? You've got, uh, yeah. yeah, Susie's got a lot, but, but picking out fun glasses is not one of them, because it's not trivial, it's, it's masterful. Like, we know that, like, we need certain skills as a community, right? We know we need plumbers, we, we, we know we need educators, we know we need medical people, we know we need people to grow our food and sell us our food. Uh, we, 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 we know we need all of these different skills. I wonder if part of what's going on in this story is not just to what extent do we need people who, who have and live out and grow in their faith, but to what extent do we need people who model that to, to those around them? Like, not so much that you need faith and you need to grow, but, but what if part of this conversation is, is it trivial to live in the midst of somebody who, who lives out their faith in front of you in ways that you get to benefit from. I was processing this with somebody recently and they were reflecting on, on, on different things and different dynamics and they were saying, but this person, they, they handled this with so much grace, I just don't know how they did that. And it was so fun to go, I think we're talking about the sermon from a couple weeks ago where we were asking like, how big are the gaps between you and who you want to be? Because what you can do is you don't have to be shamed by how they handled it versus how you handled it. What you get to do is reflect on the fact that they're 20 years further into their walk with Christ. And maybe that just gives you confidence that it does work, that we can grow, and that you can get to that space as well. Like how important of, it is, how important of a skill is it that we live our lives in the midst of people who are growing in their faith and somehow we get to see it and witness it. What if that's what's going on here with Jesus? Let me, let me see if I can make that case, so to speak. In Matthew 17, uh, I'm gonna kind of start in the middle of it because Jesus speaks in a way that, that it's not consistent with any of the stereotypes most of us have uh, about Jesus. Jesus answered, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. I mean, that's pretty direct. I mean, if, if a coach speaks to you that way, it's like, oh man, it's, 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 been, a, it's been a bad moment. Like, you, you can't persist in relationship this way. And I think there's a couple things to point out, or maybe one, and that is, notice that Jesus, he, he refers to the generation so in a sense, he's speaking to the disciples, but in another sense, he's speaking to the whole, like the whole aquarium, the whole culture. Like there's this air we all breathe, and he's speaking to all, it's kind of like, you can be frustrated with your kids and the way they stare at their phone all the time, and they're a reflection of you and us. Like we can be, we can be frustrated with the specifics, but probably we should be frustrated with the whole culture that's addicted to screens. 
That's kind of a soapbox, but I think what Jesus is doing there is, is, is he's, he's speaking to, there's this issue that you have, but we all have it. So what's he doing and why is he using this moment? Because we all know like, you don't get to play that card that many times relationally. Why does he use it here? Well, he keeps going and Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was cured instantly. There's some crazy stuff happening there. Then, the disciples came to Jesus privately and they said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. Now I think we have to pause here uh, because many of you have been tremendously injured by principles that could be claimed to be derived from this passage. Cancer that wasn't healed, uh, deafness that wasn't cured, and the accusation was, well if your faith was right, then you would have a different outcome. And I think this is one of those moments, years ago I learned that when it comes to selling anything, whether it's an idea or a blender, one of the really valuable things to do is spend the time to be aware with, uh, of the reasons why it's not a good idea to buy it and name those to your audience because they'll trust you all the more that you're, you're also aware of the downsides. This, this text, this story has some major downsides if we're not careful. Uh, it looks something like this. Let's just go to that next slide. It can lead to conclusions like this. If good faith, if good faith equals healed, then does not healed equal bad faith? Like we, we can go here, go there with this. I think it's important to remember Jesus himself modeled suffering. Not all desired outcomes for Jesus became reality. He cried from the cross, why God did you forsake me? He prayed before it all happened, please Lord if there's another way, let's do that way. We can't define God as somebody who always gives desired outcomes. So what's he doing here? Well, let's keep going. For truly I tell you that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it'll move and nothing will be impossible for you. Whoa, big promises, blank checks. Like you just told them you'd get it to them on Monday and you're not gonna get it to them for a month. It's a big deal. What, what's happening here? Well, well first of all, uh, as I understand it, in the, ancient, in the world that Jesus lived in, the general understanding was that a mountain had roots that went as deep into the ground as it did into the air. Uh, so if you've ever pulled a dandelion, we can all appreciate like that's, that's tricky when something has a strong root. I've, I've watched people with four-wheel drives and chains pull juniper bushes out and it felt like a bad advertisement for the truck because it's not easy. So in some sense, the idea of moving a mountain, it, 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 it captured the epitome of that which is difficult, if not impossible, because you can imagine that if the assumption was correct that, that, that Mount Everest went as deep down with roots as it did above, like, that's impossible. But there's another dynamic here, and I think this one is just as important, if not more important. Let's go to the next slide. We've shown you this before. This is called the Herodian. On, on, a, good day, I've, I've, on a good day, you can stand on the Mount of Olives and look the 15 miles across the valley and see the Herodian, which stands in Bethlehem. And if that's familiar, that's where Jesus was born. Uh, this is, it's a mountain, but it's a palace. Herod had several palaces because he was paranoid and he always had an emergency, he was an Enneagram 6, he always had his exit route from Israel that would get him back to his native Edom, it was a series of palaces, Masada was one of them, this is one of them, but, but here's the crazy thing about this mountain, the, the mountain's not native to where it is, 
Like he didn't just have he didn't just have the palace built, which you can Google it. It's fascinating. It's like it's like inside of the volcano kind of a thing. It's a massive palace, but the mountain itself was built. So he he had he some at at some point he moved a mountain to this location. Or he didn't do anything. You know what I mean there. He, he had, like, we're talking great pyramid kind of stuff. And while it was moved, he had this massive, massive palace put inside of it. People would have known this. And part of the reason someone like Herod would have done this is because who wants to stand up to the guy who can move a mountain? They would have known <clears throat> that when Jesus referenced moving a mountain, he's talking about Herodian power. Remember, they, they're an oppressed people. Their land is occupied by a foreign re- regime. They have different opinions about what we do with this. I mean, it, in a sense, it's, it's modern-day Ukraine is unfolding in, in their lifetime. Nobody can agree, like, what do we do about this dynamic? But one thing is clear. That guy's in charge. And Jesus talks about, if you have faith, you, you, can, you can move a mountain? What's going on here? Well, question, how how powerful is faith? And not just yours, how powerful is it on your life when someone else practices their faith in a way that you get to experience it? Sometimes knowingly, sometimes not. You know, just a, a few narratives that, I don't think I can scientifically prove this, but I think I can look at my own life and, and see it. When I was 17, I started hanging out with this family and they had this neat relationship with Christ and I was dating their daughter and I was totally that guy, the unhealthy guy who swooped in on the daughter and and I totally didn't understand them at all but in hindsight, every Sunday night we couldn't hang out there and we hung out there a lot because on Sunday night they had their small group. I was like, what do you do there? Do you like butcher chickens? Like it just, none of it made sense to me. In hindsight, Part of their small group, years later I would learn that one of the couples in their small group uh, were this couple, uh, Lance and Gail Fowler, just these remarkable, remarkable people. I didn't know at the time. Uh, What I also didn't know was that uh, they had kids that were about my age and my wife's age, and actually their son was who my wife really wanted to marry, and that didn't work out for her, but it worked out well for me. (laughs) He's this, like, adventurous doctor who lives all over the world, and here's me. (sighs) I, I I didn't know any of this stuff. Uh, what I also didn't know was, uh, and until years later, because I did reconnect with them just real quickly when I came to this kind of faith moment, is that part of what they did every Sunday night was they, they prayed for me. Uh, the like rebellious, unhealthy high school junior dating their freshman daughter. Question, what, what impact did subconsciously perhaps, like I, I knew, I, I, on some level I knew what they were doing. What, how did that form me? And not only that, how, how did a couple years of their praying, what, what, <clears throat> what impact does that have on, on, on me? Did it have on me? And, and if you want to get weird, like, did it have on us? And this whole, like, it's all interconnected. Or, or another one, like, my wife's mentor from early on was a gal named Pammy, and she is like, there's salt-of-the-earth gal who was a kid's pastor into her 50s, single, never married, just felt like God called her to dedicate herself to the kids in this church, and she was remarkable at it, and uh, she did eventually marry. I remember at the starting of the wedding ceremony, uh, Pastor Stan, the pastor at the time, he started the whole thing by looking at her husband, who was once divorced, marrying Pammy, this, like, just the, the emerald of this whole community, and he said, Curtis, 
you're the most scrutinized man in town. <laughs> Which was accurate. <clears throat> anyway, when, when we started having kids, they were, the, the, my kids know her as Nana, and, and we've stayed connected. And this last Christmas, we were hanging out with them, and at one point, sh she's retired now, but she works part-time for the, I think it's the school district, and her job, this is this kind of classic Pammy, is she rides the bus that picks up uh, kids who, who have all these physical or emotional challenges and make sure they get to school, and then she rides the bus to make sure they get home, oftentimes in pretty rough neighborhoods and in tough situations, and she said to the boys at one point while we were just hanging out, she said, I pray for you guys every day because my route takes me by your old house in, in Billings, and so when I drive by the house, I just pray. Question. What, what impact does that moment have on their faith experience? And what, 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 what yeah, we can go to that. Um, what, what impact does, does it have on the, the whole thing? Like their whole life, I mean, the, the, the prayer itself. Or, or one more, I have a friend who just is, seems to have just this remarkable marriage and we were talking, it's been months ago, and he was talking about how amazing his wife was and, and one of the things I love to do when someone's saying that, because I've experienced this myself and I've been down this road several times, is, is just go like, did you have any idea how amazing she, she was when, when you married her? And he's like, I mean, I knew she was amazing, but I had no idea how amazing. And then he said, and you know what else is crazy? Is he said, I, I know, like, growing up, he said, my, my parents constantly prayed for who my spouse would be. And he said it never, it, you know, I mean, he, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put him in that, like, was raised in this, like, hyper-religious context at all, but he said, I just knew my, my parents always prayed for who I would marry. Now, you can see how we can draw bad conclusions there, because that is, like, if, if the, had they gotten divorced, would that mean they prayed bad? Like, we, we can go down this negative line, but again, here's the other part of the question. What role did, did his even hearing his parents pray that way what role has it had in his faith experience and his own growing faith? Not to mention the invisible side of all of this. Like, what, what if what's going on in this story is Jesus does not want it to be trivialized that, that having a faith that's growing and somehow living that in public but, but not in a way that's pretentious or gross is actually a really important asset to a community. Like what, what, what role does that play? Because the other observation that I think can be made here is in this story, like who has faith and who benefits because of the faith? Like let, let's just go back to the very beginning. When they came to the crowd, a man came to him, knelt before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. There's the Jesus prayer. For he's an epileptic and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples but they could not cure him. It's a pretty rudimentary observation, but notice, like, the father's faith impacts the son. And you could ask the question, like, well, what kind of faith does the son have? We actually don't know. We're not told. So he's healed because of the father's faith, which again is what brings me to this idea of, of what if this is a story, and what if Jesus' frustration is like having confidence in God and the character of God and the faithfulness of God, having this kind of I don't have to control God but I know he's in charge kind of dynamic, it's actually a really important asset to a community, to a people, to a home, to a place. What if what his frustration is, is frankly their, their failure to, to live into that and really what this story is about is 
is a God who's going, I'm going to need you to continue to grow up in your faith. Because someday this person who you admired the way they handled it, they might not be there, but God's plan is that you will and your faith will have grown such that you can fill that void and represent Christ in those ways. What's the role? We talk about faith as my faith and personal faith and okay, I think we can all agree there's some value there. But, but is your living out your faith just as important as it is that, that someone answers the phone when you call uh, because your furnace broke? Like we need somebody who knows HVAC. Do we also need somebody who knows what it looks like to spend a lifetime learning to grow in your trust of God? Uh, N.T. writing his commentary on this passage, he tells this story about a woman who, who lived in a town that was built on a harbor and she, she made it a goal at one point in her life that she wanted, to, she wanted to exercise by swimming back and forth across the harbor. People did this in the town. Uh, so she spent almost a year training getting ready, she wasn't naive to the task at hand, and she swam endless laps at the, at the local gym. Finally, one spring, the day came, and she went down to the harbor, and she slid into the water, and uh, she started s- swimming across the harbor, and she quickly found that she was doing it. She's pumped. She's making it. Didn't seem as hard as she thought it might be. It felt uh, kind of like what the, what the pool felt like at the gym. She got to the other side quicker than she thought she would. She turned around, she came back. She made it to shore. She had this very kind of internal victorious moment. Uh, next day she went back. She's going to do it again. And she was only a few minutes into her swim when she r- was struggling. And for a minute she thought it was all in her head. Maybe she thought, maybe I should have given myself a day off in between. But it just, it didn't feel the same. Uh, it didn't feel like she was making much progress. Eventually she took the energy to kind of measure from the shoreline how much progress she had made. And she was right. She was exerting more energy and moving slower, and then she started to have that panic thing happen. Started to scream for help and kind of wave for help, and it felt like eons before finally the lifeguard, because there was an active lifeguard at this spot. It was a popular recreation area. She felt the warm hand of this lifeguard pull her up out of the water into the boat. And just a few moments later, uh, she, she was sitting on the beach, covered with a blanket, drinking, drinking a hot cup of coffee, and finally she found the words to say to the lifeguard, I don't get it, I don't understand what happened. And he said, uh, this is what's really frustrating for what we do. He said, because actually, the water looks the same, but the currents are way different. And what we're constantly dealing with is, 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 is people who, who aren't as ready as they think they are, and they jump in anyway. And N.T. Wright's comment is, he, he thinks that the frustration leveraged towards the disciples here is Jesus knows Like, the world needs people who are growing in their confidence of God, and I need you to fill that void. I need you to be committed to growing that way. The story that chases this one is a Jesus who once again says he has to die, and the thinking is that probably what's going on there is Matthew is writing to an early audience who's trying to decide whether or not they have the faith to die for their faith. And he's reminding them, remember, Jesus told you all along the goal is a growing confidence in God and the world in which you sit needs it. I was thinking even just this morning, like Jesus says if you have faith and growing faith, you'll be greater than Herod. It's funny to think, like who's more famous in the world today, Peter or Herod? It's not even even close. 
What if Peter's right? What, what if Jesus is right? Excuse me. That as much as we need your everyday vocational skill, uh, the world rises and falls on the hard work of people who are committed to allowing God to stretch what it means to have confidence in God and to find ways to tastefully make that a known asset in the community. You know, as Avery and Anna and Teresa come back up here, we're going to give you a chance to take communion. But I think maybe the, the question is just, is, is just simply, uh, what, what's the crisis right now? Like what, what, what's the challenge? What's the trial? It's highly unlikely there isn't one. And at the risk of trivializing the pain and the suffering, what, what, what does it look like to go, okay, so along with several other things that are also important pieces of information within that crisis and reasonable reasons to grieve and all, all these different emotional dynamics, what, what's, what's the opportunity uh, to allow God to, to use this particular moment to actually bring you out the other side as someone who has even more confidence in the steadfast character of God? What does it look like uh, to, to be that kind of person within community and how important of an asset is it? Is it a trivial one or is it an important one? Uh, if you've not taken communion with us, we're gonna have elements here and here and we'll kind of loop through the room and you'll, you'll pick up on it pretty quick because Mark's going first. So all you gotta do is Mark gets it right and everybody else is golden. I just invite you to use this time to, to reflect on uh, a Jesus who died for you, but it, it's, it's, it's not intended to be a static moment. It's not a yes or a no, a black or a white, a good or a bad. It's a Christ who's trying to rescue you, yes, and lead you into an ever deeper understanding of his love for you and uh, the confidence you can have in his character, which is epitomized by his willingness to suffer and die uh, for us. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram. 